Um, the province's independent investigations office looks closely at any police-related incidents of serious harm and death. Usually, each year, the office deals with six to seven police-involved shootings. However, in 2022, the IIO has already had 15 police shootings. Since April, the office has opened 95 investigations, and that included four deaths and 26 injuries in Vancouver only. Here to talk about that is Wade Deesman. He's a criminologist and associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Good morning, Wade. Good morning, Rozzy. How are you doing? Great. So let's get into the background before we talk solutions. We've had more than double the number of shootings in one third of the time. What, what do you think is going on? It's a very good question. I think there are a variety of different explanations and I think we're going to have to look more carefully at each of the incidents. Um, one suggestion has been that there's been kind of an increase in, in the police using their weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, we, ha- we would have to look at the nature of the incidents to see whether that, that's actually the case. But that would suggest something in the nature of a training issue, or it could be a climate issue within, within uh, the VPD and police services in the lower mainland more generally. Um, the other thing is there could be a change in the character and nature of, of the kind of violent incidents we're seeing post-COVID. And I think that some consideration has to be given to that because um, I think that the, the emotional and interpersonal and cognitive load that COVID placed on the population, and particularly on marginalized people, um, has had a lot of consequences. Okay, so consequences for the public, but uh, also are you suggesting that COVID had consequences for the actual police officers? Oh, unquestionably it did uh, in a variety of different ways. I think it it increased the burden of policing in some ways and made it more unpredictable um, and uh, more difficult to discern what was happening, I think. um, And and just the the reality of of policing during a pandemic, I think, um, all of the unpredictables in that context, too. So I think, yeah, some incredible pressure within the institution, but also um, the changes in the kind of social, cultural, emotional supports for the general public and particularly marginalized people made it much a much more vo- volatile um, situation, one which in which it was much harder to get mental health supports uh, to deliver them properly and effectively. Um, and health, the health system more generally, as, as, as we all well know, is, is, is really, uh, I think one of the callers uh, had said on an earlier show, is on its knees. Yeah. You also mentioned, Wade, that maybe it's a training issue. Can you say more about that? Well, um, there is this question about when, when and to what extent, whether and to what extent and in what respects, you know, the use of, of force and lethal force is justified. And in this particular case, I think... Um, the, the police, or in these particular cases, the police always say um, that the shootings were necessary to prevent additional members of the public or the police from being seriously injured, right? So there's a, always this question of what's the threshold that justifies um, the use of your weapon and, and, you know, in what context, that kind of thing. And so, you know, um, in, the, in the context of training, that's always a judgment call, and it's difficult to train. And sometimes I think the, the, the emphasis can be to err on the side of caution um, to the extent that, um, that it, it creates questions in the public's mind anyway. And, and in communities in particular, I have to say this, communities where they see these shootings happen um, are actually really negatively impacted because it decreases the level of trust that they have in the police and the, the, 
their willingness to kind of call the police when something is going on because they're fearful that, you know, one of the people involved might be shot. Yeah, that judgment call is so tricky. You know, I interview spokespeople all the time, but when I talk to real officers off record on the street and Mm -hmm. I, or I meet them through, through whatever socializing and I talk to them and I, and I hear these stories of the pressures on them and their attempts to rely on training. um, And I wonder if they themselves have enough emotional supports. They sound like they are overwhelmed. They sound like they are always on tenterhooks, no matter what they look like or appear to be to the public on the outside, that inside they are constantly going through emotional turmoil because they are always planning for the worst, that when they approach uh, somebody on the street, that this person might try and pull out a weapon themselves, might try to strike them. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for sharing those observations. I think they're absolutely valid. Um, The police are under tremendous pressure, and these um, situations and circumstances are often traumatizing for them because they put them in such difficult judgment call situations. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always careful of as an expert who's interviewed about these things is not to kind of armchair quarterback and, you know, render judgments about whether the use of force in this context was justified and necessary, et cetera, et cetera, because I recognize that the situations are are so complex. When we think about policing as an institution and how it's evolved and what it's expected to deal with these days, I think that's where we see just how extensive the burden is. And and I think we have to ask ourselves whether it's realistic to entertain the idea that one institution can can kind of be this Swiss army knife that's able to deal with all of these different situations and problems. And that's why I think the kernel of, of legitimacy in the uh, defund the police movement is devoted to moving resources upstream so that um, less and less of these problems are materializing in a kind of immediate kind of need to act now policing way, right? Um, So people talk about, you know, reassigning more resources and restructuring the system so that we have supports available so that people with ADHD are less drawn to, you know, um, find themselves less in situations where they're exposed to opioids and those kinds of things, right? So there's a, I think um, there's a bigger discussion here to be had about um, the, the number of burdens that police are carrying right now and um, how those burdens can be lessened and what other social institutions need to have, I guess, more resources behind them and more, um, I guess, um, depth and breadth to help in this situation. Wade, you mentioned there that also uh, police officers could possibly look at more training in uh, crisis de-escalation. Mm-hmm. In the same breath, you said that police officers are expected to be a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> and and it's true they are, but what is, you know, what else could we possibly do? We need them to be a Swiss Army because we look at uh, police violence. Mm-hmm. We look at, you know, how disproportionately marginalized people uh, are found to be victim of police violence. Um, so don't yeah. we need that Swiss Army knife capability in our police officers? Yeah, I think this is such a good question. I think we're, we're dealing with the short-term realities and then the long-term fixes. I mean, the short-term realities are what they are and we do have to have um, you know some capacity to respond i i like that the um the the models that have been pioneered in many cities where they have joint response teams where they have a social worker somebody from the healthcare system something like that all in place to respond together and they have, have a case conferencing system i know that 
They've got that in the lower mainland to some extent, but I think that that makes a difference. It lowers the extent to which it's an expectation of being a Swiss army knife. But the reality is until we move some, some more resources upstream of this predicament, this situation will persist. And yeah. so we can keep looking at it in that way and say, what do we do? What, what do we do? And the answer is we can't fix this one right now until we make a longer term investment. It's going to take some time to materialize the payoffs associated with it will take some time to materialize. You know, often what happens in these situations is there'll be enough of these um, shootings and that kind of thing. And then finally, there'll be a public outcry and that will spawn some kind of inquiry or inquest or that kind of thing. Um, and it will be backward-looking. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of a forward-looking, uh, what I would call a blue-ribbon task force that's aimed at looking at restructuring policing and looking at how resources need to be reapportioned so that the realities that police are, yeah. are called to deal with are not absolutely, you know, Gordian, not intractable realities that nobody could possibly deal with. Okay. Thank you, Wade, for being with us this morning and sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure.